If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week, I'm talking to Irina Dumitrescu, who teaches medieval English literature at the University of Bonn, and is the author of The Experience of Education in Anglo-Saxon Literature, which is out now in paperback. Her piece in the current issue of the LRB is a review of Women, Writing and Religion in England and Beyond, 650 to 1100, by Diane Watt. Hello, Irina, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, it's nice to be here. In the introduction to her book, Diane Watt says that people often asked her while she was writing and researching it if there were any women writers in the early Middle Ages. Um, but as, as her book and your review of it show, that isn't really the right question, is it? Even though one straightforward answer is, well, yes, of course there were. But the, the idea of the solitary writer... The, well, the thing is, most our most frequent medieval author, especially when we're looking at vernacular literature, at Old English, is Anon. Anonymous wrote the works that we tend to read and teach in classrooms. So it's a quiet assumption or sometimes not so quiet assumption that Anonymous was a man. I think that's the instinct that a lot of scholars and students have. But of course, if we were very, very rigorous about it, we'd have to say that we'd have to prove that Anonymous was a man in any given circumstance. We do know that women in early medieval England had access to uh, education, had access to uh, Latin literacy, to the classics. Not a lot of them, but also not a lot of the men, right? So it is, it is an elite skill to be able to read and write. Then there's the question of, which I think is what you were hinting at, the question of what authorship is altogether, right? Which we might say then maybe the author is not a he or she, but a they. I think that's really the big point of Diane Watt's book, that authorship is communal, that it, communities create texts, not individuals. And that and is true now as it, as it was then in that, you know, she has three pages of acknowledgments to her book, which is, is quite usual. And that's, and that's how it is. And that, that, what you were just saying about sort of the elite creation of it, and you begin your piece with the story of, of Cadman, who may or may not have existed. But again, that sort of illustrates all those things you've just said about the sort of community creation of, of works of literature. You know, the, the story, if you want to say the myth of Cadman, is one of the first things that students of Old English read, right? They tend to read it in the Old English translation uh, of Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. And it has this monumental quality in the field. It's a, it's a point of origin. It's kind of the origin of English literature, if you like. Not really, but <laughs> <laughs> that story has taken on, uh, has taken on that aura, the, that halo, if you like. And the way, you know, the way I learned to think about it when I was going through university was here was this, this man who had a responsibility, a kind of, uh, he did farming work on the grounds of the monastery uh, at Whitby. And he was a party pooper. And every time that the, <laughs> the I think he'd drink the beer, but when the harp came to him uh, at night, he didn't have any songs that he could sing. So he has this wonderful revelation in a dream where an angel appears to him and tells him to 
to sing of creation, and he sings of God's creation of the earth. It's a Christian song, even though he's actually in a secular context. And then the story comes around to the monastery, and he he's tested. It's a real miracle. And he's basically brought into the monastery as a monk, and he goes on to compose all sorts of other poems in English. And that's why he has this kind of epic, epic stature. Also, I think because the poem he composes is short, so it's easy to teach to, <laughs> to beginning English, old English students. A number of feminist scholars, and Diane Watt is not the first one, and I'm not original in my introduction when I tell that story. Claire Lees and Gillian Overing have also written about this. I've noted how important Hilda is, the abbess of Whitby, right? First of all, the whole thing takes place on the territory she manages. She's not the instigator at the at first, but it's within the, the area of her authority. Then she's the one who finds, who gets the report about him. She's the one who has him tested. She has people teach him stories from the Bible and commands him essentially to, to transform them into verse. She brings him into the monastery, right? At every level, she's involved in the nurturing of this talent. And yet, when I went to university, it took me years really to think of her as having any kind of role in the creation of that poetry. When I when I was writing the piece, I went back and looked at the bead, and I I have actually published on on ecclesiastical history, and I've published about that particular passage, but I hadn't noticed before, even even in the process of researching it and writing about it, how explicitly she is referred to as being active in so many parts of that story. Bede doesn't hide it. Bede makes it very clear that she has an important role as a patron in in the story. So w- whether or not the story is true or apocryphal, the idea for Bede, there was nothing unusual about the idea of a woman having this amount of power and control and all the rest. No, I, not at all. I think Hilda was a particularly powerful woman and a particularly influential woman, which is why she also has a big role in Bede's history. She taught five bishops, right? She ran a double monastery, so she was responsible for both men and women. That's also a little hard from the modern perspective to think about, that a lot of these abbesses were managing monasteries that that had both sexes, right? So they weren't only responsible for women. And she taught five bishops. She was an influential player. For him, no, that wasn't strange, but she would have been, I think, a particularly extraordinary example of a female power in the period. And so her, something that occurred to me, which is probably slightly fanciful, but her relationship to Cadman, as it were, it's like Ocheline Morel and T.S. Eliot or the Marquise de Lombert as a salonier, <laughs> that idea of the... Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, I think, you know, I was thinking about this, that Reading Diane Watts' book made me realize how simplistic some of the ways we talk about authorship are in our own period. And I don't mean to criticize literary scholars because I think in terms of scholarship, there are very sophisticated ways of thinking about scholarship. People are not naive anymore. And yet the habits, the habits of mind still circle around a single author, right? Which Who is the person who composes some sentences in their heads and then puts them down on paper or vellum or what have you. That idea is so strong and it shapes so much of how we understand people's creative work and intellectual work. And reading Watt's book really made me rethink so much of what we do in in our period. I mean, as you say in your piece, that's a 
even if it wasn't that idea wasn't invented in the romantic period it was certainly reinforced so cadman's hymn when did it when did it become known as cadman's hymn when was it sort of tied to him as an individual or an imaginary individual so Bede gives the gist of the hymn but he gives it in latin and he actually remarks in his text that the latin can't really convey the original because it's a, it's a translation what we have later are some manuscripts in which an english version or old english version of the hymn appears in the margins along where the latin is and then there's a later 9th century translation of Bede's history into Old English. And at that point, that Old English is incorporated into the actual text. And the bits about how the translation is not perfect are left out. So the first English poem we have is in Latin. And we don't know for sure whether that Old English version that we see in the margins and then later in the translation of the ecclesiastical history, whether it really was the original composed by some guy named Cadman at Whitby, or if it was a back translation from the Latin. And of course, there are Anglo-Saxon poems, which anonymous ones, which are written from a woman's point of view. So the wife's lament and... Yes. And is there any idea? But there's no reason to believe, <laughs> certainly when I studied that at university, I don't remember talking about who would have written it, but I don't, you know, there was no, well, there was no assumption that it would have been written by a woman necessarily. No, and I, I, I tend to be a little sceptical of that too. I think the idea, this is where I make enemies, my friend. Um, <laughs> I think the notion that people can only write about their own experience is a very, very, very modern notion. And it would have struck people in the Middle Ages and early and late Middle Ages and the classical period, and frankly, also the early modern period, as a strange idea, right? Not only because of how people thought of literature, but because of how people were trained to write literature. We know less about this for, for Anglo-Saxon England, but we do know for the classical period and then later for the later Middle Ages that... Boys who had a good education, who had a rhetorical education, would practice making speeches or poems in various kinds of voices. And part of the art of literary training was writing like a shepherd, writing like a young woman, writing like an old woman, writing like an old man, and so on, right? Adjusting to various classes, genders, age, and so on. So this notion that we sometimes have that something in the voice of a woman is in any way likely to have been written by a woman, I think is odd. On the other hand, in the 19th century, sometimes the wife's lament was considered to have been actually about a man and in the voice of a man. Uh, at least in one of the editions, I don't remember the editor, but in one of the editions, some of the early pronouns are changed, which refer to the speaker, to make them masculine, because it was so strange for them to imagine even a poem in the voice of a woman. Right. Especially that particular poem uses heroic vocabulary to describe the relationship between the woman and her lover. So it was obviously a poem about the relationship between men. Right. Anything else was unimaginable. <laughs> so that's another another way we can sometimes fail is to is to assume that all the writers are men. I would say even a poem in the voice of a man could have been written by a woman. Yeah, of course. And there are some writers that you mentioned in your piece, who we who we know were women and who who wrote. I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but one of them is Hugerberg, the abbess of Heidenheim, who, who wrote a travel narrative about St. Willibald's journey to the Holy Land. 
So I don't know if you could tell us a bit more about her and about her book. Hugeberg is quite interesting. She's um, she's an 8th century uh, nun. She lives in uh, a monastery. She's brought up in a monastery that's uh, run by distant relations, and she eventually becomes... Well, I don't think she becomes abbess, but she's uh, she's in the she's in the monastery run by the sister of Willibald. Willibald and his brother go off to the Holy Land. Uh, Willibald actually makes it there, and Hugeborg writes lives of Willibald and his brother Winibald. It's kind of sometimes a little tricky even for me to keep all the balls apart. Um, but you, basically, two two men who have these quite interesting lives, and uh, she she writes their stories. Willibald's story she knows from him because he visited the the monastery and told her about his travels firsthand, and then she wrote them down. At the beginning of her of her life of him, she talks about herself in quite modest terms. You know, uh, it's sort of typically self effacing. And the thing is, I think you know one way of reading that is to say, okay, she understood that women were or women did not enjoy the same kind of literacy as men. She knew that women were not supposed to teach in the Christian church. It's biblical, right? That there was, a, there was a sense that women should not take on that role. On the other hand, almost any Latin text you read from the period begins with a modesty topos. And sometimes they're in quite complex Latin, and it's something like, Forgive me, sir, that I have dared to presume that the flowers of my impoverished rhetoric could ever suffice to the topic at hand. You know, and it goes on for pages and pages and maybe every every word, all, all of it is alliterating and all of it is highly ornate and stylized. So I don't take the modesty topoi too seriously. And even Watt points out that even, even as Huckerberg is saying, oh, I'm just a poor Saxon nun, right? A modest Saxon nun. She's bringing herself into the story. She's actually naming herself as a woman. Now, the neat thing about it, other than that Willibald goes off to the Holy Land and we have this kind of neat story about his travels through Italy and through Cyprus and and, and through the Holy Land, is that she actually encrypted a sentence into the text uh, which wasn't found, I think Bernard Bischoff is the one who recognized it in, in a manuscript of this text. And unencrypted, the Latin reads, I, a Saxon nun named Hugeborg, wrote this. So she signed the work, right? which I think is really the more telling, the more telling move than the modesty topos at the beginning. And we do have male writers who sign their works in an encrypted way. Boniface, the missionary and bishop does it. A mysterious author named Kunewolf, who encodes his name into several of his poems in Old English. So it's also a move that men, male writers do. But she also signed her own work. And another writer that you mentioned, Leoba, who wrote, you just mentioned Boniface. You said mm -hmm. that she, she wrote to him and she became an, an abbess. And I'm definitely not going to try to say the name of the place she became abbess of. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... And um, you know, and it'd be interesting to hear hear a bit more about her as well. I love Leoba. I just really love Leoba. She's <laughs> she's the most fun of all. Uh, so I think Leoba is interesting to Watt because she writes poetry and she includes it in um, in a letter to Boniface. So we actually have there with her a named female author of poetry, no less. Why I love Leoba is that she's 
a manager. Uh, so she's educated as a nun in Wimborne. And early on, she has this dream, which I think is fantastic. She dreams that she has a red thread coming up from her bowels through her mouth. And the thread keeps coming up and she's madly trying to roll it into a ball. But there's still more and more thread and more and more thread. And she keeps rolling it into a ball until she's so exhausted she wakes up. And she wants to know what this dream means. So she has another nun go to an elderly nun in the community and pretend it was her dream. The old nun immediately knows what's up. And she says, no, this wasn't about you. This was about somebody else. And she says, okay, the thread is the wise counsel of the heart. The fact that you're, she's doing something with her hand shows that the action, her action will carry out her wise counsel. And the fact that it becomes a ball is a sign of divine teaching. And what it is supposed to be is a kind of foreshadowing or vision of her future as an abbess. But what I love is it shows, I'm going to admit now, I just finished being chair of my department. <laughs> it shows what, it, what it's like to deal with administrative labor, right? <laughs> she already has a sense, even when she's, she's young, that it's just going to be exhausting. This stuff is ever going to be coming out, right? Um, and the red is the kind of royal purple, right? It's, I think it's a sign of authority uh, and so on. Uh, but, but it's just lovely because it's such an exhausting dream about power, right? It's a frustrating dream about the power that will be thrust on her when she's older. And if you like, I could tell you some more about what she does with that power and, and why yeah, I think she's so... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like I said, we could do the Lioba hour. I, I, so <laughs> she, she's very learned, right? When she rests, she has her nuns read to her from scripture. And even when it seems like she's sleeping, she will catch them out if they leave anything out or make a mistake in reading out loud. To the point where they actually test her by inserting mistakes into their reading just to see if she will always catch it. And of course, she always does. And then she has these these challenges with uh, the locals, right, with the local villagers in Tauba Bischofsheim, where, you know, in one case, there's a fire and they come to her and they say, help. And you get the sense of a woman who is leading a community in a place that's maybe not fully converted to Christianity or maybe not even converted to Christianity. She has to really prove a lot in, in that context. And these villagers just don't know how to deal with their fire. So what does she do? She has some salt that was blessed by Boniface put into the water upriver. And then she tells them to take water from downriver and use it to quench the fire. So they do. <laughs> and they quench the fire, which miraculously <laughs> proves her power and the power of Boniface and the Christian faith. And I think that's just marvelous, right? These people can't get it together. And she says, here, we'll make the water magical for you. <laughs> And now could you take some buckets and, and douse the fire with some water? Well, great administrator. Yeah. And of course, and Hilda, who you, we were talking about earlier, again, was a, was a similar position, you know, that administrative running to two monasteries. And also, presumably, the monasteries owned a lot of land and you have the farmers who worked on the land and having to... So that they were, yeah, it's sort of immensely powerful people in a way that's been elided so well, certainly in the sort of the popular idea of of nuns in the you know early Middle Ages, nuns it, they don't really fit that. No, not at all. And I think that's 
that to me is really the value of starting to think about female authorship. It's interesting in its own terms, but it's also really neat to see what what else opens up when we think about the kinds of things these women did. And of course, you know, I think of them as CEOs in a way, because I think if you had, a, you know, when you have a company put out a a text, you know, being a commercial or an official biography of the of the CEO or a company history. We know that the people who write those texts are not really the authors. We know that they're doing the bidding of the company or of the uh, of the person who's hiring them, that they're serving a kind of purpose there that's about PR and image making and the way the story is told. We have to kind of translate that to the past a little bit and understand that a woman who's running a monastery and has a lot of things to do and is teaching and is organizing and is probably dealing with disputes among people and is keeping an eye on current events and trying to uh, find out what's going on in the world as well and in local politics, she's not necessarily going to sit down and write all the lives herself or all the texts that the monastery needs, right? She'll get people to do it. But what they do will suit what she wants. I mean... I suppose in a sentence or, I mean, there's the CEO, but it's also, it's almost an editorial role, isn't it? That an editor, yeah. or you know, you're commissioning the books that you want to be written and that's the, you know, or a publisher or those kinds of roles in bookmaking, which, you know, which has, as you've mentioned in your list of people who, who help modern authors, they're the equivalents of, of them as well. That's true. And editors don't necessarily get their names on the books either, <laughs> right? No. <laughs> <laughs> if the author is very nice, they they mentioned them in the acknowledgments quite warmly, but I think we know that agents and editors and sometimes editors for hire and writing coaches have a lot to do with how the text ultimately winds up. Right. Yeah. And of course, yeah. I mean, I think there are some publishers now, this is a bit of a tangent, but who decided they've started putting as it were, credits in the book. So all the people who worked on the book, mm -hmm. including the designers and the typesetters and that, and they took well, that's great. Yeah, that, that acknowledging the collective endeavor. Um, and you had mentioned just now, about the um the layover and when she'd get the other nuns to read to her and that's the other and this is something you've written about in a in a previous piece for the LRB about the idea of reading aloud and what reading was was a the experience of reading that we now think of as a sort of a very solitary experience so reading like writing were both collective practices yeah, for a long period for a long period of time i think certainly people could read in a solitary way and i think they did and we, we do think now that even in the Middle Ages and in the classical period, people knew how to read silently. Though the assumption, last time I read about it, the assumption is that there might have been something like a little sub-vocalization, sort of whispering the words to yourself, even if you were reading on your own. But to a much greater extent than today, people also enjoyed books together. They had books read out loud to them. They read books to others they also often, depending on the person, might have composed in an oral way. So they would have had a scribe take down what they were what they were saying. And that's something we've also lost a little bit. I think we have Netflix, but <laughs> they had reading aloud, right? And uh, there are scenes in Chaucer that show this. Uh, for example, in Troilus and Crusade, there's a scene where Crusade is sitting with her women. And one girl is reading out from the Roman de Tib. And it's a scene, I think, of how noble women would have read, which was by hearing. We know with Marjorie Kemp that she had people read books out loud to her. 
we're not sure how literate she was per se, but she knew certain texts very, very well, right? And she could do that only through an oral consumption of the text. So that, I think, also complicates a little bit the scene we have in terms of literacy. So sometimes there is a little bit of an assumption that only people who could read had access to texts. And we know by this point that that's not true, that you didn't need to read to know what was in books. And I mean, the Canterbury Tales, again, I mean, the whole assumption of that is people telling each other stories as a way to pass the time, isn't it? So. Yeah. And we think probably Chaucer would have read them out loud to other people as he would have the rest of his poetry. I mean, sometimes there's signs of that too. He has little oral elements in it. They're, they're texts that are meant to be performed. And someone else who didn't get a mention, I think, in your piece, but who is in, is in Watt's book is um, Hild's su- successor in Northumbria, Elf, Elfled? Elfled. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is the fun thing about old English names is they use the same elements. <laughs> so you get a lot of uh, very, very similar yeah. names. Not to be confused with Elfred or, yeah. Yeah. So it's elf and it's a double F. So elf fled. Fled, yeah. Elf fled uh, was thought to have commissioned the earliest life of Gregory, which is why she's interesting to Watt. Um, she was abbess after, as you mentioned, after Hilt. But again, what I find interesting about her is she she's a good example of how someone in her position could establish relationships with powerful men as well. So she has a lot to do with Cuthbert, um, the early ascetic saint, who is really quite a charismatic figure. And there are um, a couple of lives of Cuthbert, one uh, anonymous produced at Lindisfarne and another written by Bede. And she appears in both of them. And she will do things like ask Cuthbert who, how long the king, her brother, is going to live and who's going to take over after him. So she essentially, she doesn't, she doesn't just want current events, she wants future events. And Cuthbert essentially lets her know that one brother will die soon and another brother will, will get the kingship after him. He lets her know his own future as a bishop. So she's someone who's really very much want, has, her, has her finger on the pulse of current events, even though she, um, she lives the monastic life. And there's a miracle that involves her where she is suffering from some terrible illness and she prays for something from Cuthbert. And he sends along a linen girdle and it miraculously heals her. And then she uses it to miraculously heal another nun and then it magically disappears. And she tells that story to others, right? So it's a good example of a situation where she may not be writing. Other people are writing down the story. But she's making sure that it gets into the record because it also shows her special relationship and the special relationship of her community to this great man. And she was, my goodness, I'm not getting confused with someone else, actually, which is Edith, who you do write about, (laughs) who, again, another one of these. And she was she was a member of the royal family. Right. And, and, And there was an idea that maybe she would be queen and. So in that sense, it's a kind of it's a very so even more on the nose the idea of this temporal and spiritual power in the same person and and in in a woman, not in a man. Yeah, these these were often women with noble or royal connections who who then administered monasteries. Right, they were not 
separated from life in the way that we sometimes imagine. Or we might sometimes think of recluses in the later Middle Ages where they might have themselves holed up somewhere in a, in a little room adjoining a church. And even they sometimes manage to have a lot of conversations with people, even when, when holed up in their little... Yeah, exactly. They, they still got the story out. But I think when we're looking at the early Middle Ages, we really see women who are used to power, have observed power. Sometimes they're the daughters of kings. Sometimes they're just noble women, but, but well-connected. And for them, it's an obvious move to exercise power within a monastery as well, right? They're administrators. They, they know how power works. They know how image, um, how image is made, how prestige is gathered. Uh, and, and this is, I think, what we also see in the text that they, especially when they have text produced, we see, we see this kind of move, right? And so would that be a way of that? of families sort of consolidating their power. If you're, you know, the Earl of an area, make sure his sister's running the convent because it's a way of keeping that land and and that wealth within the within the family. Yeah, absolutely. Well and and monasteries are useful things, right? You can uh use them to hold synods and conferences. People can be housed in them. You can use them to train young women who are maybe uh, of royal blood and not meant for the monastic life, but you need a safe place where they're going to be educated and taught all the proper things and maybe not come into contact with too many roving <laughs> young men. Uh, so I think uh, that kind those these networks of power in the in the early and later Middle Ages um, often do include include ecclesiastical power, and sometimes the lines are really not so not so firmly drawn. The um, <laughs> the mention of, of keeping the keeping them away from the men takes on to the, uh, the uh, another piece that you wrote for us i think the, the first piece you wrote for the lrb that was a, a review of um obscene pedagogies about transgressive yeah. talk and sexual education in late medieval britain by carissa harris and i thought that the, the story of cadman oddly sort of mirrors the story that you began that piece with which is about um an 11th century obscene poem about a man not called cadman but i'm probably gonna mispronounce this as well Moriot. Moriart, yeah. Moriart, um, who ends up, I mean, like Cadman, ending up in a in a community of nuns in Northumberland, <laughs> rather than, <laughs> but as a more or less sort of a, <laughs> but is kept as a sex slave rather than as a sort of a writer of divinely inspired poetry, but <laughs> that <laughs> slightly strange <laughs> contrast aside, sorry. Um, but the question of that that piece, it was quite one of the points you made quite strongly in that piece was about sort of medieval ideas of women's agency and women's that's kind of that goes against the grain of our modern expectations. And it's sort of the sign that we, we you know, the way we think about the Middle Ages often isn't reflected in in in, in the writings that we have and, and what you know, people who actually know actually know about, about them. Yeah, that that is a wonderful parallel. I have to say, I did not draw that one. I thought you were going to say something about the fact that Moriart is also a bad a bad composer of Latin verse, right? All of the all of the smutty things he does and is involved in are, of course, not not his real sin. The real sin is composing a line of bad Latin. Well, he's also Irish, and it's a very anti-Irish poem, right? It makes it's a draws on a frequent prejudice of the time, um, but. Uh, 
yeah, I think, uh, you know, the really, the the problem when we think about the Middle Ages, I think, is that a lot of people still really believe in the version of history in which everything gets better. And I think it's wrong. And I think it's especially wrong when we look at women's lives. We do not see progressive improvement in women's freedoms and rights and powers over the ages. What we see are periods of kind of golden periods in which women have comparatively a lot available to them. And then we see decline. So if you're looking at early medieval England, women in the 8th century seem to have more power and better literacy in Latin than they do in the 10th century. There seems to be a decline even in nuns' literacies over that period. If you look at women's property rights before the Norman Conquest and after the Norman Conquest, they're better before the Norman Conquest, right? Women lose rights afterwards. Uh, If you look at um, abortion rights in some places today, women have fewer abortion rights than they did in the Middle Ages, partly because in the Middle Ages, it took longer to ascertain that a woman was pregnant. So it gave her a little more wiggle room to make decisions, right? So I think this this idea of history where everything just gets better and we are now at our most enlightened and <laughs> uh, selves, right, uh, that we've ever been is is quite simply wrong. But it also means that we presume a kind of uh, primitiveness on onto the about the past that is also wrong. And what I thought was so great about Carissa Harris's book Obscene Pedagogies is, on the one hand, she talks about all these texts where you know, there's a rape going on and it hasn't always been recognized by readers of those texts as rape. It's It's been thought of as a seduction a lot of the time. And she argues that, no, it's rape. And really, these were these were poems about rape and they were meant to dramatize that and, and reflect the emotions that surrounded that uh, violation. On the other hand, what, what Harris does that is, I think, so valuable is she also points out that medieval writers were very good at writing consent when they wanted to. And I have to tell you, since I read that book and wrote the piece for for the LRB, I have seen so much consent, explicit consent in medieval texts. I now notice it everywhere, right? So it's not just that I now notice sexual violence where I didn't before or where I sometimes let it fall into the gray area without thinking too much about it. But I'm also noticing how often medieval writers really compose scenes where it's very, very clear that the sex is desired and is consented to. And that, to me, in a way, is kind of mind-blowing, right? Uh, Because the proof is in the pudding. They can do it. They write consent when they want to, when they want to make it very, very clear that a woman is as interested in the sex act as a man, right? Which means that when they don't, that's also a choice. And when do you think that became obscured as it were that idea of the is it was it victorian readings of medieval or before or was it that would be my hunch but i can't give you a really intelligent answer i do think there is there's a kind of change in the stereotypes around women's sexuality that happens which uh, scholars who are more informed than this uh, could fill in but i suspect it's it's mostly victorian uh, in the middle ages women are tend to be thought of as the more sexual gender right Women are the ones who want sex. Men have to protect themselves <laughs> against the never-ending <laughs> erotic hunger uh, of, of the lusty women who surround them. Uh, 
So there is that stereotype about women being very seductive, uh, sex hungry, um, ravenous and unsatisfiable in the in the Middle Ages. That at some point flips. And my guess is in the Victorian period is when it flips. But I can't prove it to you right now. To the point where now we assume that men always want it and women tend not to. That's a modern idea that women don't want sex as much as men do. And do we know, I mean, presumably most of the um, the texts that Carissa Harris writes about are anonymous, but do we have any medieval writing about sex that we know is by women? Well, Marie de France writes about love and some of the characters in her lays have sex. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, Marjorie Kemp writes about sex, but not in a very positive way, right? She writes about her relationship with her husband and she had a, a number of I think she had 14 children, uh, at least one quite traumatic pregnancy that seems to have been followed by a um, a depression, a postpartum depression. And she at one point tells her husband that she will no longer have sex with him. And he agrees essentially to a sexless marriage. And she has this demonic vision. I forgot. She uh, Marjorie Kemp also has this vision that's inspired by the devil in which she sees all these men of different faiths showing their members to her. So... Yes. Okay. <laughs> Marjorie Kemp writes about sex, <laughs> but she prays for God to remove that. <laughs> I was just thinking about the way, and did she, she spoke them and someone else wrote them down? Or we don't know that yeah. about her. Yeah. About Marjorie Kemp? Yeah, Marjorie Kemp. Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a lot of information about how uh, her book was created at the beginning of it, though it's a little bit confusing. She uh, had uh, someone from Germany who I think is now, is now thought to be her son, who had lived in Germany for a while, write down a good chunk of her story. And then he died and she wanted to complete it. But what he had written down was, was illegible or was very hard to make out. And she had some, a different scribe try to kind of rewrite it and then complete the text. So she had, if I remember correctly, two scribes who, who wrote down her book and the second scribe has a sort of miracle in that he is magically able, not magically, that's, uh, that's wrong. He's miraculously able to, to read the first text, which I think he probably got used to it. I think it was a little bit Germanized and he got used to reading it. But she relied on scribes to, um, to write her life. And it's the, the case of Marjorie Kemp uh, is, a, is a great example of this um, more communal and complicated authorship in the Middle Ages. It's very clear that the book is is the story of her life that she once put out into the world. The book refers to her in the third person. She's this creature. Right? It's a, almost an over-the-top kind of, with an over-the-top humility. But she has it, she has it written down. It's her story. She's just not the person putting pen to paper or to vellum. And when... You know, if it's Milton dictating to his daughters or Henry James dictating to his secretary, yeah. nobody even questions that. And so it's a, you know, so she's as much the author as yeah, as either of them were. Yeah. Well, I think this is, if I could say something to that, this is one of the things about um, Hugeborg, our our nun who wrote the the Voyage of Saint Willibald. I was looking up uh, the text, and there's a 19th century edition um, of that text or a part of it. I think it's called Early Travels in Palestine. And in the voyage of, of St. Willibald, it, underneath it says, as told to a nun of Heidenheim. So she becomes the scribe in that text. At that point, they didn't know her name and so on. So perhaps there's a reason. 
But I think when the woman writes things down, she's a secretary, she's a scribe, she's a helpmate. <laughs> and when the man writes things down, he's the author. <laughs> so that's our way of looking at things. That's not necessarily the medieval way of looking at things. Irina Dimitrescu, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Irina Dimitrescu's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Adam Tews on Paul Krugman, Rivka Galchen on The Brain, and Emily Witt on Patricia Lockwood. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.